0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We continue in the season of Advent with the third Sunday in the season of Advent here in year three, year C, of the church calendar. Our readings are going to be from the Old Testament, Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 to 20, the Epistle, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, and the Gospel text is from Luke chapter 7. Everyone will be reading 18 to 28 However, um, there is an optional addition of verses 29 through 35 to the end of that text. Um, last week, we had something similar with chapter 3. We'll actually pick up those, those extra readings uh, verses from chapter 3 in a few weeks, um, whereas the Luke 7 text does not appear again this year. So we start with Zephaniah chapter 3. This is the actually the very end of the book of Zephaniah, this is how his prophecy ended as he speaks to God's people. The book is almost entirely about judgment. It's about the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh when he returns and judges the earth. It is written in the reign of King Josiah who was king of Judah from 640 until 609 BC. And this ending is really the only hope in the book. I can't say the only because it it actually started before this um, chapter 3 verse 9 through 20. So the basically the back half of chapter 3 is the section of restoration and hope, the promises of God, and we have a part of that. Zephaniah is only read one other time in the three-year lectionary, and that is proper 28 in year A, so right near the end of the church year. uh, We read chapter 1 verses 7 through 16. So part of chapter one missed, all of chapter two is missed, and most of chapter three is missed in the lectionary as well. But it's a short little book, so feel free to give it a read. It'll only take you, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes at most to get through. So let's go ahead and just read the text. It's one paragraph, I guess, in the way that the English has it. Um, More in the not the normal recording of scripture right where you just have paragraph form this is almost more poetic in the way it's it's spelled out for us or laid out for us sing aloud o daughter of zion shout o israel rejoice and exult with all your heart o daughter of jerusalem yahweh has taken away the judgments against you he has cleared away your enemies The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, So, what we see here in verse 14 is really a fourfold command to celebrate, right? Sing aloud, one, shout, two, rejoice, three, and exult, four, and do it with all your heart. So, this is a full celebration, a grand celebration. Who is celebrating? The people of God. Daughter of Zion, Zion's another word in the Old Testament for Jerusalem. A very specific hill in Jerusalem, but the names are used interchangeably. Israel, again, the people of God, and daughter of Jerusalem, again. So, God's holy people, the ones he is going to redeem and rescue, celebrate. Why? Verse 15, Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. I mean, we could stop right there, right? We could just end the text right there. We could start our celebration together uh, on that note alone, right? I know the judgments against me. I know my sin. I know how broken I am. I know what I deserve because I have read the law of the Lord. I know what the outcome of rebellion against God means. It means death and condemnation. And yet, yet here's the promise. Yahweh has taken that judgment away from me. Yahweh has taken that judgment away from you. And as Christians, little Christ, followers of Christ, we know the how, right? We know it is because of Jesus that he has taken these judgments away. And that's what this prophecy then ends up being about, is how the Lord will deliver, how the Lord is taking away these judgments from amongst his people or against his people. So we start then with clearing away your enemies. This isn't just the simple restoration that Israel has seen at other times, like in the book of Judges when their enemies overwhelm them and oppress them and God sends a judge to deliver them from that oppression. Though that is what they were looking for their Messiah to do, they were expecting another judge who would deliver them from Roman oppression. This is a reference though to paradise, where we are free from all enemies, and that would be the enemies that we often talk about as the church, right? We talk about sin and death and the devil, that Christ has delivered us From these. He has delivered us from sin and the devil by his death on the cross, which forgives sin and takes away our guilt. So the devil has no power over us. He has delivered us from death by his resurrection on the third day from the tomb. The grave is empty. Death could not hold him. And if it cannot hold him, it cannot hold you, because you are his. These are the enemies Christ has redeemed you from. And in this we rejoice. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. Such a powerful phrase. The king of Israel, Yahweh. Who is their king? Their true king is God himself. Remember what the people had done. I mean, this is somewhere between 640 and 609 BC. So, you know, a good thousand, not thousand, 400 years ago or so, around 1048 or 1049 BC is when Israel demanded that God give them a human king. They demanded it. They wanted to be just like their neighboring nations. They did not want God to reign over them. They wanted a man to be their king. God warned them, but they insisted. And so the Lord gave them over to their sinful desires, and it helped to destroy them just as God warned them that it would. But, ultimately, God is going to give them a human king, right? A man for their king, who is God in the flesh. Yahweh, dwelling in our midst. Emmanuel, right? The prophecy of Isaiah 7. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. The words spoken in John chapter 1. Um, Specifically, probably, we would look at John 1 14 so let me pull that up here real quick John 1 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth so um, not just dwelt the the Greek word there would be tabernacled which is great um, God in our midst tabernacling with us tenting with us dwelling with us Uh, And we're going to see that again down in verse 17. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. Um, That was the promise of the tabernacle. That tent that they build in the book of Exodus, that they carry with them all those years of wandering in the wilderness from 1446 to 1406 before they enter the promised land. And they continue to use the tabernacle as the, the house of the Lord until the temple is built. But that's some you know, close to 400 years later, more than 400 years later when Solomon constructs the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. The, ta- the temple then takes over that same role. It is the place where God has promised to dwell in the midst of his people. You see that beautifully with the the layout of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, um, that the, the Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place, the inner room of the two rooms of the tent, and it is the the throne of God himself, because it is covered by the mercy seat, and from upon that the Lord will speak his word to his people. And when you get the aerial view of it, and you see the camps uh, of Israel set up around it, I believe that's the start of the book of Numbers. You see that three camps, three of the tribes camp to the east, three of the tribes to the north, three of the tribes to the west, and three of the tribes to the south. The picture, God in the midst of his people. And so that continues, right? It continues from the tabernacle to the temple, but then ultimately is fulfilled for us in Jesus, that God dwelled among men, that God was in our midst and still is in our midst because we still have Christ with us today, right? Our bodies, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, our bodies are the temple of the Lord because the Spirit dwells in us, because Christ dwells in us. And the beautiful promises that we have from the Lord and because of this, right, to get back to verse 15, you shall never again fear evil. Now in fairness, we never should have feared evil. We are commanded not to. however, our sinful nature, our weakened state, we often fear things, we often rebel against God. Don't trust in God the way that we should. But when we get to this point that this promise is, this promise is not just some time on earth. This promise is ultimately paradise. When we get to paradise, there will be no evil there to fear. There will be no sin there to be overwhelmed with. That day is going to be, I mean, it's beyond our understanding, right? But, verse 16, right, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Now, remember the. The focus of this book is the day of the Lord. So on that day, we should probably, once again, be looking at that as the day of the Lord. So when, when Christ returns, that's the day of the Lord, his second coming, the people of God need not be afraid because he is coming to restore us. He is coming to raise the dead. He is coming to take his people who have trusted in him and give them a glorified body. Maybe that's not even the right way to say it. Glorify their present body, right? Um, Your body that you are in, if you do not die before Christ returns, so if he comes back today or, you know, 15 years from now, if you're still alive when he returns, your body will be glorified. Your body and soul will never experience the separation, the ripping apart that occurs in death. But those who have died, they will be raised, body and soul reunited and glorified before Christ forevermore. The Christian need not fear the day of judgment because we will be, we will be with the Lord. So uh, the hands growing weak is a reference to fear. Um, if you think of a time in your life maybe where you've been overwhelmed by anxiety or fear, you really I mean your body starts to shut down. Your hands start to tremble and they they do. They grow weak. They're not usable. You know, they're they're shaking so much that you can't you can't hold a cup of coffee or a you know, in your hand without it spilling or falling to the ground and breaking. So that's the picture here. So Yahweh, our God, in our midst. Tabernacle, temple, fulfilled in Jesus, a mighty one who will save. That again is the risk of giving them the picture of the Old Testament judges who would deliver them from earthly oppression. But this is what Jesus does. Not from earthly oppression, but from the oppression of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul would phrase it in Ephesians 6 The promise here that he is a mighty one who will save is then picked up on by the angel uh, Gabriel as he announces to Mary the good news of a savior. That she will be with child, that she will give birth. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will rejoice over you with gladness. This reminds me of a few verses in the Old Testament that talk about how the people of God are his treasured possession. Malachi chapter 3 verse 17 gives you an example of that. Um, But you also get that paired up in the New Testament with 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 that we are a, I always mix up the adjectives, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, A people for his own possession right we are his and he rejoices over us this also connects very well to Luke chapter 15 verses 7 through 10 where we learn that there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents that the angels rejoice so God himself rejoices over our salvation over us being a part of his family, a part of his kingdom forevermore. He will quiet you by his love. I think we might put a negative connotation to those words when we first hear them, right? The the quieting you. We think of, I don't know, harsher words probably oftentimes where we say we tell someone to shut up. Um, But quieting someone probably has that same connotation to us in English, and that's not the direction that we want to read this phrase. He will quiet you is a reference to your fear and your anxiety. He's going to take your troubled mind and your troubled heart, and he's going to calm them. He's going to quiet them. He's going to bring peace to them so that you are no longer fearful. And he does so by his love. So we think again of Christ's death on the cross, It takes away all of our sins. The devil has no more power over us. We have nothing in this world to fear. Even if a virus kills me, I'm with Christ. Even if persecution makes me a martyr, I am with Christ. The world has nothing over me. The world has nothing over you. Poverty doesn't matter. Terrible suffering doesn't matter. This is Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is, this is the promise, right? This is the promise of the gospel. Though verse 17 ends with another phrase that we probably don't often think of. He will exult over you with loud singing. So the Messiah, Jesus. Can you picture Jesus singing? That's just not a picture I think we often have, right? But Jesus is going to sing over you on account of you right have you ever been so happy you just start singing that's the picture jesus is so glad right to use the other word uh, here in verse 17 that he's going to sing he's going to rejoice that you are his as a groom rejoices at his bride Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. That phrase might need a little bit of uh, cleaning up in English. I'm not sure. Um, I think the way I first read it when I was doing the study for the text today, um, I read it as he was gathering them. For a festival, like he was going to bring them together for a party. And in a sense, that's true, right? I mean, he's going to bring us together for a heavenly banquet that never ends in his paradise. That's a New Testament part of this promise. Um, But I think we could look at it and take that preposition for and use the word over in English. I will gather those of you who mourn over the festival. So the idea here is that his people have been exiled. His people are no longer able to celebrate the things like the Passover, what God has done for them. They are mourning because these things have been taken away. God's people will mourn for various stretches of time because the temple has been destroyed. And yet, God is going to gather them to himself. He is going to restore their rejoicing unto them. So that they will no longer suffer reproach. The world will not be able to look at them um, in a negative light because, well, the, the people that would have done that are gone. They have been judged. Verse 19, again, behold, at that time, so the day of judgment, I will deal with all your oppressors. So, I mean, notice the Messiah's role is fulfilled ultimately on the last day when he returns. the the Old Testament people and the New Testament people of God and the, you know, the disciples and such, they were looking for a king, a messiah, an earthly reign that would remove persecution from them now. They wanted their oppression gone um, from among them now. And unfortunately, that's still a way that a lot of people confuse Christianity today as the social justice movements um, impact the church and kind of overwhelm it. I mean, when when that comes in, you lose sight of the gospel most of the time. That's the danger. I mean, you end up seeing Christ the same way the disciples were seeing Christ, and they were foolish. And it took a lot of teaching, and it took actually watching Christ die on the cross and then seeing him rise from the dead. It took all of that for them to realize how wrong they were. christ will deal with our oppressors but he's going to do it on the day of judgment this is romans 12. vengeance belongs to the lord we are not to seek revenge the lord will judge and we seek to save our enemy not to harm them I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I mean, saving the lame. Jesus did this twice over, right? He saved the lame, some of them, by literally giving them the ability to walk again. He saved them from lameness, but he also saved them from sin, death, and the devil, and that's the salvation that lasted for them. He will gather the outcast. Whether you're talking about the lepers, remember Jesus healing lepers and allowing them to come back into their communities, into their homes, their families. He will gather the exiles. as we talk about Israel and Judah being exiled into Assyria and Babylon and how the Lord would redeem them and bring them back from that in 538 BC under King Cyrus of Persia. But Jesus is going to do this all the more so. He's going to gather the exiles. He's going to gather us. I mean, this is a picture the New Testament gives, and I think the Old Testament as well, Um, but the New Testament certainly spells it out very specifically that the Old Testament faithful recognized this is not their home. They were exiles. They were longing for the home that God was preparing for them, and that's the promise of John chapter 14 that Jesus makes, that he is preparing a place for us, and that if he is preparing a place for us, he will come and bring us with him to be with him there. That's our home, where Jesus is. The paradise he prepares for us, that is where we, we will live forevermore. That is our citizenship. Not here, not this place. We are exiles. We are outcast. There are Christians who feel that stronger here, Um, as the world literally has cast them aside, as they face strong persecution where they are. But really, I mean, this is the promise Jesus gives to all of us, that the world will hate us because the world hates him and we follow him. So the world hates us too, unless we're too busy trying to cling to the world and its ways. So the Lord will gather us to himself. He's gonna change their shame into praise. So the shame that they face because the world despises them is going to be overturned. It's going to be gotten rid of, and it's going to result then in the people of God praising him, right? On the judgment day, when all of your oppression is gone, when sin, death, and the devil are gone from upon you, all that's left is to praise God for his great salvation, his great goodness, and renown in all the earth. So the whole world will know that we are redeemed, The shame, by the way, there, uh, I mean, that just picks up on the two examples right above it, right? The lame and the outcast. Those are shamed in this world. Verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. So at that time, at the time, again, day of judgment, when I gather you together. This is John chapter 10. John 10 verse 16 is where we can go with this one. Um, John records for us, I have other sheep, the words of Jesus, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I I skipped over that. That was parts of verse 14 there, familiar text for you. Jesus gathers us together. From the ends of the earth, he will gather us together on the last day. That's That's the language you'll start to see in the book of Revelation. I will make you renowned and praised, for we are lame. We are outcast in our sin, and yet the Lord is going to make us known among all the peoples of the earth. I mean, that's that's the day of judgment, I mean, that's the picture that we get. As every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ is Lord, Philippians 2, but not every tongue will be saved, right? On that day when Christ returns, it's too late. For repentance for those who have rejected him their entire life when he returns the judgment is sealed just as it was when the rains began at the start of the flood and the ark was sealed it was too late for them to repent would they have anyway Um, it'll be that way on the day of judgment as well and so among all the peoples, the peoples of the earth who remain in their sin, who have rejected Christ and do not repent, on that day they will see you raised in glory. They will see the Christian church raised in glory, as they are then judged for their rebellion against God. So God will make us renowned and praised when he restores our fortunes before our eyes, and that's again paradise, In paradise, we will have all that is his. Hallelujah. We get to reign with Christ forevermore. He is king. He is creator of all things. And all that he has is yours. In Christ. Amen. We move into our epistle reading now, which is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. We started with Philippians last week as we had a part of chapter 1. In the season of Lent this year, you see, we're going to read from Philippians three more times. We still don't get all of the book, though. Um, we get just parts of it. So here we have more of it. Um, this is the final chapter of Paul's letter. He's writing again to the church that he helped plant in the city of Philippi, which is a basically a Roman retirement community for their their military men. Uh, this is a letter of thanksgiving as he praises God for this church, for these Christians here who are part of the kingdom of the Lord. Probably written in the range of 60 AD sometime. Now, as we look at this text, it's a short one. We only have verses four through seven. It's a simple paragraph. But these are gonna be familiar words to you. Verse four and verse seven specifically will be very familiar words to you. So let's give this a shot. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, again, familiar words to you in this section, right? Verse 4, and this this is one we want to spend some time with. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Now what what English word do you notice at the root of the word rejoice? It's that little word joy. And to understand rejoice, you must first understand what joy is. Joy is often misunderstood by the Christian in the United States. And this is in part because we have we have allowed the worldview of the the American to become our worldview rather than the worldview of Christ and his gospel. So the American dream, the American way is really hedonism, which is the idea that you want to accumulate as much pleasure for yourself as possible while avoiding as much pain as possible. So the word joy then has taken on, instead of the the meaning that we're going to talk about here in a moment, it has taken, wow, let let me start that. I'm going to describe joy as what you treasure. All right. So because of our hedonistic worldview, we treasure pleasure. And so joy has become a word that means happy in English. And that is not what joy is. Right? Let me phrase it to you this way Christian. I don't know on the other end of the podcast here if you're my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. But dear brother or sister in Christ, what is your treasure? Our treasure is Christ himself. That is our joy. He is our joy. And the, the danger then of looking at joy as happiness is what happens when you're not happy. What does that say of your faith? If happiness is joy, see, in joy you can be happy, but you don't have to be. If I'm not happy at any given moment, if I'm sad or I'm if I'm depressed or whatever might be impacting my emotional state at any given time, I'm not removed from Jesus, right? He is not suddenly not my Savior. This is good news for the broken sinful nature of us fallen people. There are Christians who spend most of their lives wrestling with depression. They are still Christians. Christ is still theirs. This is joy, that Christ has redeemed you, that you are his, that your sins are forgiven. The gospel the good news, the paradise is yours. And so even if you wrestle with sadness and depression now, Christ has defeated those two. And on the last day, when he restores us, when he glorifies our bodies, those things will be gone. And remember, that's part of the revelation promise. There will be no more tears, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So joy is what we treasure that then helps us to talk about this word rejoicing. To, to put re in front of it is to do it again, right? Um, so rejoice, take joy in again. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the Lord. He is our treasure. So rejoice in the Lord Again, take joy in the Lord. Again, this is a phrase of encouragement as Paul seeks to help point them not to the things of this world, not to their paychecks, not to their homes, not to how great their family might be. He points them to Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, right? This is the focus. This is what it's about. Um, I don't know about you, but this has been put to music. So, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. I guess you could just keep singing that. Um, Philippians 4.4. 4. Now, as we keep going with the text, then, there's more encouragement here. So that's an encouragement pointed to Jesus. Verse 5 Verse 5 is a little weaker in the ESV translation. So it says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This word reasonableness, um, the Greek word here, is used in three other New Testament scriptures. And the ESV doesn't translate it as reasonableness in any of those. Each time it's a, a slightly different um form of the word but in Acts chapter 24 verse 4 this word is rendered in ESV as kindness in 2nd Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1 it is gentleness uh, specifically the gentleness of Christ and in Titus chapter 3 verse 2 it is recorded as gentle then N-A-S-B, English translation, instead of reasonableness here in Philippians 4-5, I think says gentle spirit, if I remember correctly. So, the Greek word that we're working with is epiakēs which then means gentle or kind. Um, those are the prominent ways to look at this word. And so, I don't know where reasonableness came from here. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Let your kindness be known. Be known to everyone. This is, on the one hand, telling us to live our lives a specific way. Be known for kindness. Be known for gentleness. Those are traits of Christ. Um, Rather than being known for greed or lust or anger all the time or anxiety, let people know you by your kindness, and this then becomes a witness to them, right? If they see you kind, always, they're going to wonder why, and I've probably shared this in the podcast at some point in the past, but, and this reminds me of an example of one of the martyrs, a well-known example of Polycarp in the second century. The Roman soldiers come to the house to arrest Polycarp, and really, I mean, it's understood, they're taking him to execution. And they come to the house to arrest him. When they knock at the door, it's not, I don't believe it was Polycarp's house, other Christians in the community. They were making a meal at the time, and they invite the soldiers into the home, and they have them sit down and they feed them. And while they're eating, Polycarp goes off and prays. And when they get finished with their meal, they take Polycarp, and he goes with them willingly. And at that point, he will be executed. And I believe tradition holds in the church that one of those soldiers, at least, is converted simply by seeing the kindness of the Christian, and the way that Polycarp responded even knowing death was upon him because he's rejoicing in the lord always right he he knows that even in the suffering that is going to be upon him temporarily and he phrases it that way you you threaten me with a fire that burns but for a moment i think those are the words he uttered so i mean be known for your kindness And let that be a witness to others. They'll see your kindness, even in dark moments, and they'll wonder, why are you still kind? Why are you still gentle? And that gives you the opportunity to share the faith that you have, the trust that you have in Christ. And that's the next phrase, right? The Lord is at hand. This is why we can be gentle and kind at any given time, because Christ has come near That was the promise that he made in the Gospels. That was the thing he often said, right? The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand, depending on what English translation you're reading from. Um, For us, this is his second coming. Advent, right? The season of Advent. The coming of Christ is drawing near. The last day is drawing near. He has promised he will return. And so as Christians, we hold on to that. And again... That that ends up sitting at the center of this, doesn't it? I mean, grammatically and theologically. Verse 6, as it continues on, I mean, the reason we are not to be anxious is because the Lord is at hand, right? I mean, to be anxious about things in this life is to lack trust in God. If you're anxious about what you're going to eat, you're not trusting that God will provide your daily bread. If you're anxious about how something is going to go um, tomorrow, you're you're again. You're not trusting that the Lord is going to provide for you. There is a fear that is the root of anxiety. Matthew six commands us not to fear, not to be anxious. Jesus, there commanding us instead to trust in the Lord. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things. What you need, your daily needs, will be added to you. Um, so, because the Lord is at hand, we know we don't have to be anxious. Again, um, this this government could turn on us at any time. They could send a soldier to my house and threaten my life to take my life. Um, And I know Christ has me. I don't have to worry about that happening because if they kill me, I'm with Christ. If they take my house away from me and put me on the street homeless, the Lord will provide. He will care for his child and if that homelessness somehow still leads to starvation and death, I'm with Christ. This is what the Christian has. We don't have to fear this world. We don't have to fear the persecution or the suffering. In fact, the suffering draws us near to our Savior. It's a message of First Peter that comes across quite clearly. Uh, read that letter. Read it through several times. I mentioned Zephaniah as a short one today. Philippians is too. I mean, you could read Philippians... About the same amount of time you could read Zephaniah. Three chapters for Zephaniah, four for Philippians. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So again, this is about trust. Trust in the Lord. If something is making you anxious, stop. Pause. Take a breath. Pray. I know a brother pastor who encourages people in those moments to step outside and just look up. I mean, spend a couple minutes just looking up at the sky and pray. And when you go back inside, it won't seem as bad anymore. Give that a shot. might be worth it. Right? Trust in the Lord above all things. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. So prayer and supplication, we put those together. But, I mean, thanksgiving too. Thanksgiving is a part of our prayers. Thanksgiving leads to contentment. When you give thanks for things, you... You're not as covetous afterwards. So we thank God for all that we have. We thank God for everything that he blesses us with, everything that he gives to us. All right, verse 7 is the other part of this text that you probably know quite well. If you're a member of a Lutheran congregation, it is possible you hear this phrase every week. Um, Many Lutheran pastors, I don't have a percentage by that, but many of them, um, probably the majority, Use this verse as the close of their sermon each week. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, I don't end my sermons that way. My brother pastor where I serve right now does um, oftentimes, but I, I end my sermon by pointing you to the second coming. I will end my sermon with the simple prayer of Revelation 22:20, 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is a prayer that I know every Christian needs to have memorized, and so I'm trying to encourage the people of the, of the Lord in my congregation to do so in that way, to stop looking at the things of this world as if they really ultimately matter all that much, um, your stuff, your job, and such, and to instead root your life around the promise that Christ is coming back, which then causes you to focus on sharing Christ with others, um, the value of people over the value of stuff. It connects to that anxiety thing quite a bit. But anyway, um, so does this, the peace of God. So the peace of God, and uh, immediately after that says, Paul says it surpasses all understanding. So we can't fully understand just what the peace of God looks like. But let me try and unpack at least a little bit for you. Peace. This is not peace as in peace and quiet. This is not peace as in rest. This is peace as in the end of war. This is what Christ has done for you on the cross. That by his death, by the shedding of his blood on the cross, your sins are forgiven. They're taken away from you. The thing that separated you from God and would have separated you from God forever, Christ took it. It's no longer yours. Your sin is gone. You have peace with God. A peace treaty, right? That's language that we're familiar with. That's the kind of peace we're talking about here. There's no more war between you and God. Your declaration of war against God has ended. And yet, how wondrous this is, how comforting this is, is still beyond our understanding. But it helps against anxiety. It helps us to be kind when we rejoice in the Lord always. And it is through this it is through this peace it is through the blood shed of christ that he guards our hearts and our minds it's interesting to consider the phrase there hearts and minds we don't fully understand actually what happens in each right we we know scientifically with our conversations today that that thoughts come from the mind. I think most of the time people still assume that their emotions come from the heart. Um, maybe someday we'll, we'll learn how the body fully works when God brings us home. But I mean, just take this as God is guarding you, all of you, right? He is going to protect you from the devil's attacks. He's going to attack He's going to protect you from sin. The Lord is going to care for you as his child. And this is good news. As we continue our time together, it is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 through 28. Again, the optional reading, you can add on verses 29 to 35. So let us begin. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As we consider our text, the disciples of John, that's a reference to John the Baptist, reported all these things to him. So again, John the Baptist. So the disciples of John have been seeing what Jesus has been up to. And they have brought a report to their teacher, their master, John the Baptist, about Jesus. So what are these things that they're reporting? Well, you're going to want to look at the verse just before this, Luke chapter 7, verse 17, about how the report of Jesus has been going out into really all the region. So I'm pulling that text up here. I didn't have it open. This report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So it's this report which is a report about how he has just raised the widow's son in Nain, right? The, the boy that had, the, or man, young man who had died. And God raised him from the dead. Jesus raised him. Just before that, he healed the centurion's servant. So Jesus' ability to heal and even raise the dead is spreading through the land. And those are the sorts of things that John the Baptist's disciples bring back to John. Now, John... John's in prison at this point. We have to bear that in mind. He's in prison for having spoken the word, the truth of God. King Herod had taken his brother's wife. Now, there's a lever at law that actually describes the Jewish people supposed to do that. The problem is, Herod's brother wasn't dead, right? If your brother dies and had no children, then you take his wife as your own, but the first son that you would bear by her is your brother's, so that it continues your brother's family tree, it continues his passing on of the inheritance. King Herod's brother still lives. Well, he did at the time of the text. And so John the Baptist rebukes Herod for adultery, and Herod locks him away for it. So that's our situation with John. So John has two of his disciples specifically that he sends to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who is to come? Advent text, or shall we look for another? Is this the one that I prepared the way for? Or have I been misled to think that you were him and there's actually somebody else who's going to come that I was preparing the way for? Now, the question here... In fairness, and this has been debated quite a bit, I'm not sure we can answer it, who is this question for? Is it really John that's asking this question? Or is John asking this question for the benefit of his disciples? So let me walk you through those two options. Is John asking this question? If he is, if this is John asking for his own sake, then the question is basically this. I believed that the Messiah was coming. I believed that the Messiah was going to look like one of the judges of the Old Testament. That he was going to deliver his people. That he would be an earthly king and he would reign over this creation. He would put an end to the Roman leadership that we suffer under. Jesus, are you him? And if you are him, why am I rotting in jail? why am i in prison for speaking your truth you were supposed to free me that's one option and it questions john's faith it would show doubt from john in his dark hour before his death the other option though is that john is not actually having a wrestling with doubt but he is sending his disciples to hear and to see Jesus themselves. In a sense, this becomes like a, well, it's an, it's an attempt to encourage their faith, but it would be like transferring discipleship, right? John's going to be soon killed. What will happen to his disciples after this? What will happen to those who were following him? Well, if John is faithful and trusts in Christ, then he would want them to follow Christ. And so he sends them to jesus to hear jesus answer this question for themselves personally i lean towards that second one but i'm not sure again that we can answer it either way what actually occurs they come to jesus they say the question they've been sent to say and then an hour passes well roughly verse 21 in that hour so he's come to jesus these disciples have come to jesus to ask the question and rather than just a straight simple answer they've been watching him perform miracles either before they ask their question or since they've asked can you imagine asking a question and the teacher just kind of goes on doing what he's doing and then he eventually like an hour later gets back to you what's he done in that hour he's been healing all sorts of people curing diseases casting out demons giving the blind their sight? And then so he answers in verse 22. And what you want to do here is you probably want to go back and read a couple of the prophecies from Isaiah the prophet. So uh, one that would be in mind would be Isaiah chapter 35, verses uh, 5 and 6. Let me pull those up. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The other one is Isaiah chapter 29, and we want to look at verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see keeps going actually 19 as well the meek shall obtain fresh joy in yahweh and the poor among mankind shall exult in the holy one of israel those are a couple of great old testament prophecies about the messiah to go to and that's where jesus points these men they have seen jesus do these things they have seen him just now heal the blind and the lame um the lepers weren't mentioned in those prophecies, but he has cleansed lepers of their diseases. He has made it so the deaf can hear. He has even raised the dead. Now, whether they saw him do that or not um, would be based on whether they saw him at Nain, right? The text started with them reporting these things to John as though they had seen or at least heard of that miracle and that the poor have good news preached to them that they are. They are redeemed. They are saved in Christ. Verse 23 Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The one who is not offended by Jesus and his word is the one upon whom that word rests, upon whom that good news brings forgiveness and life and salvation. So if you hear the word of God and you reject him because it's offensive to you, then you are not saved. But if you hear the word of God through faith, then you are saved. Now, in verse twenty-four, we get the response of the disciples. So we'll read that. Let's just read the rest of the the regular text that all churches on the three-year lectionary will read this week. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So John's disciples hear Jesus' reply, and they leave. And they go back to John, and they take the news to John. They get to bring the report to John. Again, if you're looking at those two possibilities, that would lean towards the idea that this is really John's genuine question as he wrestles with doubt. Otherwise, they go back to John, and John gets to point out to them and teach them more about the Messiah so that they will go back to him later and follow him later. Again, I cannot tell you for sure um, which of those it is. Maybe it's, well, it would be hard for it to be both, but maybe it's at least part of both. So Jesus, after they leave, talks to the crowds about John. And he asks them why they went to see him in the first place. Like, why would you go out to the Jordan? They didn't go for a reed shaken by the wind, so basically a, a plant being blown around, you wouldn't go out to see that. It's like, you know, think of a plant five miles away from your house that's just blowing in the breeze today. You wouldn't go out of your way to go and see that. That's nothing noteworthy at all. So why did you go out? Did you go out to see a a fancy-dressed man? No. They wouldn't be out in the wilderness. That's not the kind of garment you wear out there. What did you go out to see? He knows they went out to see a prophet and to be baptized by that prophet. They wanted to be baptized with the baptism of repentance by John. So Jesus declares who John was. He goes back to the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. We actually had that reading last weekend in our churches. Um. Malachi 3, 1-7 to 7 was the text. So that pairs up actually quite well with Luke 7, um, but we paired it with Luke 3 instead last weekend. Again, my messenger is what the name Malachi means in Hebrew. But God is going to send a prophet, and that prophet was John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus. So, Jesus, here, just declared himself to be the Messiah, just declared himself to be god verse 28 i tell you among those born of women none is greater than john he is the last prophet of the old covenant there's no one greater than john because john points you to jesus see that right how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news isaiah 52 John is pointing people to Jesus. There's nothing greater. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Because he's in the kingdom. Right? Anyone in the church. This would connect well to Psalm 84 verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's what this is. Um, Not to say that John isn't in the kingdom but that even the the least in the kingdom of God would be greater than the greatest of men. Greatness among men, really not important, being in the kingdom of God is. That's where the text would end. But optional reading of verses 29 through 35 is there. So let's pick those up here together as well. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So, this is the response then of that crowd to what Jesus just said, to his quoting of Malachi, to who John is, and and so forth. The people who received the baptism, the people who heard John in faith, they see this as good. It's interesting that they declared God just. They can't do that. It's God who declares himself just, but you get the picture, right? They are saying that they believe the Lord to be just and fair and good. Even the tax collectors, right? There were soldiers there too, if you remember the text from last week. But the Pharisees, verse 30, and the lawyers, they rejected God's purpose. They rejected being a part of his kingdom because they were not baptized. They have refused repentance. So Jesus then draws forth a picture of what this ultimately looks like. That's going to be 31 through 32. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not weep. This generation is not a good phrase in the gospel. It's got negative weight to it, certainly, this present evil generation, this adulterous generation. So Jesus trying to make a comparison of this rejection of God, and he, he compares it to children. And I mean, we don't, get their language necessarily. Um, This would be like your children today or children today. I see this in my house quite a bit, um, where one child wants to play a game, whether it's play house or play ball or whatever. Um, And they are trying to involve another child in the game, and the other child wants nothing to do with it. So if it's playing house the other child doesn't want to play with the doll or doesn't want to be mommy. If it's playing ball, you throw the ball to the other kid and they get mad at you. They don't want to play catch. Whatever it is. That's the picture here. They're playing a children's game in the street, but the, the proper response to the game isn't there. I played the flute, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, funeral music, but you didn't weep. And that's what's going on with this generation. God has spoken to them, but they lack the proper response. And Jesus then says that in verses 33 through 35, or at least 33 to 34. 35 is a little tricky. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Do you see the distinction? Do you see the difference? God has sent John. They didn't repent. Instead, they arrested him and they killed him. God has sent Jesus. They didn't repent. Instead, they arrested him and they killed him. The people's proper response wasn't there, just like the children in the marketplace, while the other children in the marketplace that didn't play Jesus phrases it a little differently than that, right? I mean, John came, he didn't eat or drink, you accused him. I came, I ate and drank, you accused me. The sinner is going to find a reason to stay in their sin. They're not going to repent. They're going to find a a way to stay hardened of heart. That's the picture here. Verse 35 I mentioned is difficult. Who said it? You know, Jesus just put words into the mouths of the the crowd. So is this Jesus now speaking of himself, or is this Jesus still putting words into the crowd? If this is said by Jesus, wisdom is one of the personifications of Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, for example. I forget which proverb it is that actually refers to Jesus in in the way of wisdom, um, but wisdom is Jesus, so Jesus is justified by his children, that some will follow him. It is odd that it would be feminine there if this is Jesus speaking of himself. But if this is said by this generation instead, then they are saying that this isn't the fruit that they expected the Messiah to bear, and so they do they don't trust him. They don't follow him. And that's the same thing. If if John's question was a, a legit wrestling question at the beginning of the text, that's the same thing going on with John right now. This Messiah isn't what I expected him to be. And now the Pharisees, this wicked generation, saying the same thing. So there's some things to consider there. In verse 35, again, is a little tricky, as is John's question. But hopefully that's helpful for unpacking the text this week. Jesus is pointing people to see that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi 3, the promise of one who would prepare the way for the Lord, and that then he is the one who was to come. He is fulfilling prophecies that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. Jesus is our Messiah who came to save us.